Chapter Eight of Recollections of the Civil War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Recollections of the Civil War by Charles Dana. Chapter Eight. With the Army of the Cumberland. Appointment as Assistant Secretary of War again to the far front an interesting meeting with andrew johnson rosecrans's complaints his view of the situation at chattanooga at general thomas's headquarters the first day of chickamauga the battlefield telegraph service a night council of war at widow glenn's personal experiences of the disastrous second day's battle the rock of chickamauga I happened to be the first man to reach the capital from Vicksburg and everybody wanted to hear the story and to ask questions I was anxious to get home and see my family however and left for New York as soon as I could get away a Few days after I arrived in New York I received an invitation to go into business there with mr. Ketchum a banker and with George Opdyke the merchant I wrote mr. Stanton of the opening but he urged me to remain in the war department as one of his assistants which I consented to do Footnote although appointed some months before mr. Dana was not nominated in the Senate as second assistant secretary of war until January 20th 1864 the nomination was confirmed on January 26th End of footnote. The first commission with which mr. Stanton charged me after my appointment as his assistant was one similar to that which I had just finished to go to Tennessee to observe and report the movements of Rosecrans against Bragg General Rosecrans who after the Battle of Stones River or Murfreesboro on December 31st to January 2nd 1863 had lain for nearly six months at Murfreesboro Obstructing on various excuses all the efforts Lincoln and Stanton and Halleck put forth to make him move against Bragg who occupied what was known as the Tullahoma line had toward the end of June moved on Bragg and driven him across the Tennessee River he then settled down to rest again while Bragg had taken possession of his new line in and about Chattanooga Burnside who was in Kentucky had been ordered to unite with Rosecrans by way of East Tennessee in order that the combined force should attack Bragg but despite the urgency of the administration no movement was made by Rosecrans until the middle of August as soon as it was evident that he was really going out against the Confederates Mr. Stanton asked me to join the army of the Cumberland My orders were to report directly to Rosecrans's headquarters. I carried the following letter of introduction to that general War Department Washington City August 30th 1863 Major General Rosecrans commanding etc General this will introduce you to Charles a Dana Esquire one of my assistants who visits your command for the purpose of conferring with you Upon any subject which you may desire to have brought to the notice of the department Mr. Dana is a gentleman of distinguished character Patriotism and ability and possesses the entire confidence of the department You will please afford to him the courtesy and consideration which he merits and explain to him fully any matters which you may desire through him to bring to the notice of the department yours truly edwin m stanton 
as soon as my papers arrived i left for my post i was much delayed on railroads and steamboats and when i reached cincinnati found it was impossible to join burnside by his line of march to knoxville and from him go to rosecrans as i had intended accordingly i went on to louisville where i arrived on september fifth i found there that burnside had just occupied knoxville that the ninth corps which two months before i had left near vicksburg was now about to go to him from near louisville and that rosecrans had queerly enough telegraphed to the clergy all over the country that he expected a great battle that day and desired their prayers i went directly from louisville to nashville where i found general gordon granger in command as he and governor johnson were going to the front in a day or two i waited to go with them the morning after my arrival at nashville i went to call on johnson i had never met him before andrew johnson was short and stocky of dark complexion smooth face dark hair dark eyes and of great determination of appearance when i went to see him in his office the first thing he said was will you have a drink yes i will i answered so he brought out a jug of whiskey and poured out as much as he wanted in a tumbler and then made it about half and half water the theoretical philosophical drinker pours out a little whiskey and pours in almost no water at all drinks it pretty nearly pure but when a man gets to taking a good deal of water in his whiskey it shows he is in the habit of drinking a good deal i noticed that the governor took more whiskey than most gentlemen would have done and i concluded that he took it pretty often i had a prolonged conversation that morning with governor johnson who expressed himself in cheering terms in regard to the general condition of tennessee he regarded the occupation of knoxville by burnside as completing the permanent expulsion of confederate power and said he should order a general election for the first week in october he declared that slavery was destroyed in fact but must be abolished legally johnson was thoroughly in favor of immediate emancipation both as a matter of moral right and as an indispensable condition of the large immigration of industrious freemen which he thought necessary to repeople and regenerate the state on the tenth of september we started for the front going by rail to bridgeport on the tennessee river this town at that date was the terminus of the nashville and chattanooga railroad the bridge across the river and part of the railroad beyond had been destroyed by bragg when he retreated in the preceding summer from tullahoma it was by way of bridgeport that troops were rejoining rosecrans at the far front and all supplies went to him that way on reaching the town we heard that chattanooga had been occupied by crittenden's corps of rosecrans's army the day before september ninth so the next day september eleventh i pushed on there by horseback past shellmound and wahatchee the country through which i passed is a magnificent region of rocks and valleys and i don't believe there is anywhere a finer view than that i had from lookout mountain as i approached chattanooga when i reached chattanooga i went at once to general rosecrans's headquarters and presented my letter he read it and then burst out in angry abuse of the government in washington he had not been sustained he said his requests had been ignored his plans thwarted both stanton and halleck had done all they could he declared to prevent his success general rosecrans i said i have no authority to listen to complaints against the government 
I was sent here for the purpose of finding out what the government could do to aid you, and have no right to confer with you on other matters. He quieted down at once, and explained his situation to me. He had reached Chattanooga, he said, on the 10th, with Crittenden's troops, the 21st Corps, the town having been evacuated the day before by the Confederates. As all the reports brought in seemed to indicate that Bragg was in full retreat toward Rome, Georgia, Crittenden had immediately started in pursuit, and had gone as far as Ringgold. On the night before, September the 11th, it had seemed evident that Bragg had abandoned his retreat on Rome, and behind the curtain of the woods and hills had returned with the purpose of suddenly falling with his whole army upon the different corps and divisions of our army, now widely separated by the necessity of crossing the mountains at gaps far apart. This was a serious matter for Rosecrans, if true, for at that moment his army was scattered over a line more than fifty miles long, extending from Chattanooga on the north to Alpine on the south. Rosecrans pointed out to me the positions on the map. Crittenden, he explained, had been ordered immediately to leave Ringgold and move westward to the valley of the West Chickamauga. He was near a place known as Lee and Gordon's Mills. General Thomas, who commanded the 14th Corps, had marched across Lookout Mountain and now held Stevens Gap, perhaps 25 miles south of Chattanooga. McCook, with the 20th Corps, had been ordered, after crossing the Tennessee, to march southeast, and now was at Alpine, fully 35 miles south of Crittenden. Orders had been sent McCook, when it was found out that Bragg had made a stand, to rest his left flank on the southern base of Mission Ridge, and, extending his line toward Somerville, fall on the flank of the enemy, should he follow the valley that way. The reserve, under Gordon Granger, was still north of the Tennessee, although one division had reached Bridgeport, and the rest were rapidly approaching. Notwithstanding the signs that Bragg might not be retreating so fast as he at first appeared to have been, Rosecrans was confident as late as the 12th that the Confederate commander was merely making a show of the offensive to check pursuit, and that he would make his escape to Rome as soon as he found our army concentrated for battle east of Lookout Mountain. The next day, the 13th, I left Chattanooga with Rosecrans and his staff for Thomas's headquarters at Stevens Gap. We found everything progressing favourably there. The movements for the concentration of the three corps were going forward with energy. Scouts were coming in constantly, who reported that the enemy had withdrawn from the basin where our army was assembling, and he was evacuating Lafayette and moving toward Rome. It seemed as if at last the army of the Cumberland had practically gained a position from which it could effectually advance upon Rome and Atlanta, and deliver there the finishing blow of the war. The difficulties of gaining this position, of crossing the Cumberland Mountains, passing the Tennessee, turning and occupying Chattanooga, traversing the mountain ridges of northern Georgia, and seizing the passes which led southward, had been enormous. It was only when I came personally to examine the region that I appreciated what had been done. These difficulties were all substantially overcome. The army was in the best possible condition, and was advancing with all the rapidity which the nature of the country allowed. Our left flank toward East Tennessee was secured by Burnside, and the only disadvantage which I could see was that a sudden movement of the enemy to our right might endanger our long and precarious line of communications, and compel us to retreat again beyond the Tennessee. 
I felt this so keenly that I urged Mr. Stanton in a dispatch sent to him on the 14th from Thomas's headquarters to push as strong a column as possible eastward from Corinth in northeastern Mississippi. It seemed to me that it would be better to recall the troops from the west rather than to risk a check here where the heart of rebellion was within reach and the final blow all prepared. But after all, there was something of a mystery about the real location of Bragg's army, its strength, and the designs of its chief. At any rate, it was soon manifest that Bragg was not withdrawing to the southward, as at first supposed. Some queer developments down the Chickamauga on the 16th and 17th caused Rosecrans considerable anxiety for Chattanooga. The impression began to grow, too, that Bragg had been playing possum, and had not retreated at all. Rosecrans at once abandoned all idea of operations against the Confederate line of retreat and supply, drew his army in rapidly, and began to look sharply after his own communications with Chattanooga, which had now become his base. By noon of September 18th, the concentration was practically complete. Our army then lay up and down the valley, with West Chickamauga Creek in front of the greater part of the line. The left was held by Crittenden, the centre by Thomas, and the right by McCook, whose troops were now all in the valley except one brigade. The army had not concentrated any too soon, for that very afternoon the enemy appeared on our left, and a considerable engagement occurred. It was said at headquarters that a battle was certain the next day. The only point Rosecrans had not determined at five o'clock on the afternoon of the 18th was whether to make a night march and fall on Bragg at daylight, or to await his onset. But that night it became pretty clear to all that Bragg's plan was to push by our left into Chattanooga. This compelled another rapid movement by the left down the Chickamauga. By a tiresome night march Thomas moved down behind Crittenden and below Lee and Gordon's mills, taking position on our extreme left. Crittenden followed, connecting with Thomas's right, and thus taking position in the centre. McCook's corps also extended down the stream to the left, but still covered the creek as high up as Crawfish Spring, while part of his troops acted as a reserve. These movements were hurriedly made, and the troops, especially those of Thomas, were very much exhausted by their efforts to get into position. Rosecrans had not been mistaken in Bragg's intention. About nine o'clock the next morning at Crawfish Spring, where the general headquarters were, we heard firing on our left, and reports at once came in that the battle had begun there, Bragg being in command of the enemy. Thomas had barely headed the Confederates off from Chattanooga. We remained at Crawfish Springs on this day until after one o'clock, waiting for the full proportions of the conflict to develop. When it became evident that the battle was being fought entirely on our left, Rosecrans moved his headquarters nearer to the scene, taking a little house near Lee and Gordon's mills, known as the Widow Glen's. Although closer to the battle, we could see no more of it here than at Crawfish Springs, the conflict being fought altogether in a thick forest, and being invisible to outsiders. The nature of the firing and the reports from the commanders alone enabled us to follow its progress. That we were able to keep as well informed as we were was due to our excellent telegraphic communications. By this time, the military telegraph had been so thoroughly developed that it was one of the most useful accessories of our army, even on a battlefield. For instance, 
after rosecrantz had taken crawfish springs as his headquarters he had given orders on september seventeenth to connect the place with chattanooga thirteen miles to the northwest the line was completed after the battle began on the nineteenth and we were in communication not only with chattanooga but with granger at rossville and with thomas at his headquarters when rosecrantz moved to the widow glen's the telegraphers went along and in an hour had connections made and an instrument clicking away in mrs glenn's house we thus had constant information of the way the battle was going not only from the orderlies but also from the wires this excellent arrangement enabled me also to keep the government at washington informed of the progress of the battle i sent eleven dispatches that day to mr stanton they were very brief but they reported all that i near as i was to the scene knew of the battle of september nineteenth at chickamauga it was not until after dark that firing ceased and final reports began to come in from these we found that the enemy had been defeated in his attempt to turn and crush our left flank and secure possession of the chattanooga roads but that he was not wholly defeated for he still held his ground in several places and was preparing it was believed to renew the battle the next day that evening rosecrans decided that if bragg did not retreat he would renew the fight at daylight and a council of war was held at our headquarters at the widow glen's to which all the corps and division commanders were summoned there must have been ten or twelve general officers there rosecrans began by asking each of the corps commanders for a report of the condition of his troops and of the position they occupied also for his opinion of what was to be done each proposition was discussed by the entire council as it was made general thomas was so tired he had not slept at all the night before and he had been in battle all day that he went to sleep every minute every time rosecrans spoke to him he would straighten up and answer but he always said the same thing i would strengthen to the left and then he would be asleep sitting up in his chair general rosecrans to the proposition to strengthen the left made always the same reply where are we going to take it from after the discussion was ended rosecrans gave his orders for the disposition of the troops on the following day thomas's corps was to remain on the left with his line somewhat drawn in but substantially as he was at the close of the day mccook was to close on thomas and cover the position at widow glen's and Crittenden was to have two divisions in reserve near the junction of McCook's and Thomas's lines to be able to succor either. These orders were written for each corps commander. They were also read in the presence of all and the plans fully explained. Finally, after everything had been said, hot coffee was brought in, and then McCook was called upon to sing the Hebrew maiden. McCook sang the song, and then the council broke up, and the generals went away. This was about midnight, and, as I was very tired, I lay down on the floor to sleep beside Captain Horace Porter, who was at that time Rosecrans's chief of ordnance. There were cracks on the floor of the Widow Glen's house, and the wind blew up under us. We would go to sleep, and then the wind would come up so cold through the cracks that it would wake us up, and we would turn over together to keep warm. At daybreak we at headquarters were all up and on our horses ready to go with the commanding general to inspect our lines We rode past McCook Crittenden and Thomas to the extreme left 
Rosecrans giving, as he went, the orders he thought necessary to strengthen the several positions. The general intention of these orders was to close up on the left, where it was evident the attack would begin. We then rode back to the extreme right, Rosecrans stopping at each point to see if his orders had been obeyed. In several cases they had not been obeyed, and he made them more peremptory. When we found that McCook's line had been elongated so that it was a mere thread, Rosecrans was very angry, and sent for the general, rebuking him severely, although, as a matter of fact, General McCook's position had been taken under the written orders of the commander-in-chief, given the night before. About half-past eight or nine o'clock, the battle began on the left, where Thomas was. At that time, Rosecrans, with whom I always remained, was on the right, directing the movements of the troops there. Just after the cannon began, I remember that a ten-pound shell came crashing through our staff, but hurting nobody. I had not slept much for two nights, and, as it was warm, I dismounted about noon and, giving my horse to my orderly, lay down on the grass and went to sleep. I was awakened by the most infernal noise I ever heard. Never in any battle had I witnessed was there such a discharge of cannon and musketry. I sat up on the grass, and the first thing I saw was General Rosecrans crossing himself. He was a very devout Catholic. Hello, I said to myself, if the general is crossing himself, we are in a desperate situation. I was on my horse in a moment. I had no sooner collected my thoughts and looked around toward the front, where all this din came from, than I saw our lines break and melt away like leaves before the wind. Then the headquarters around me disappeared. The greybacks came through with a rush, and soon the musket balls and the cannon shot began to reach the place where we stood. The whole right of the army had apparently been routed. My orderly stuck to me like a veteran, and we drew back for greater safety into the woods a little way. There I came upon General Porter, Captain Porter he was then, and Captain Druriel, an aide-de-camp infantry officer attached to General Rosecrans' staff, halting fugitives. They would halt a few of them, get them into some sort of a line, and make a beginning of order among them, and then there would come a few rounds of cannon shot through the treetops over their heads, and the men would break and run. I saw Porter and Druyard plant themselves in front of a body of these stampeding men and command them to halt. One man charged with his bayonet, menacing Porter, but Porter held his ground and the man gave in. That was the only case of real mutiny that I ever saw in the army, and that was under such circumstances that the man was excusable. The cause of all this disaster was the charge of the Confederates through the hiatus in the line caused by the withdrawal of Wood's division under a misapprehension of orders before its place could be filled. I attempted to make my way from this point in the woods to Sheridan's division, but when I reached the place where I knew it had been a little time before, I found it had been swept from the field. Not far away, however, I stumbled on a body of organized troops. This was a brigade of mounted riflemen under Colonel John T. Wilder of Indiana. Mr. Dana, said Colonel Wilder, what is the situation? I do not know, I said, except that this end of the army has been routed. There is still heavy fighting at the left front, and our troops seem to be holding their ground there yet. Will you give me any orders? he asked. I have no authority to give orders, I replied, but if I were in your situation, I should go to the left where Thomas is. 
then i turned my horse and making my way over missionary ridge struck the chattanooga valley and rode to chattanooga twelve or fifteen miles away the whole road was filled with flying soldiers here and there were pieces of artillery caissons and baggage wagons everything was in the greatest disorder when i reached chattanooga a little before four o'clock i found rosecrans there in the helter-skelter to the rear he had escaped by the rossville road he was expecting every moment that the enemy would arrive before the town and was doing all he could to prepare to resist his entrance soon after i arrived the two corps commanders mccook and crittenden both came into chattanooga the first thing i did on reaching town was to telegraph mr stanton i had not sent him any telegrams in the morning for i had been in the field with rosecrans and part of the time at some distance from the widow glens where the operators were at work the boys kept at their posts until the confederates swept them out of the house when they had to run they went instruments and tools in hand and as soon as out of reach of the enemy set up shop on a stump it was not long before they were driven out of this they next attempted to establish an office on the rossville road but before they had succeeded in making connections a battle was raging around them and they had to retreat to granger's headquarters at rossville having been swept bodily off the battlefield and having made my way into chattanooga through a panic-stricken rabble the first telegram which i sent to mr stanton was naturally colored by what i had seen and experienced i remember that i began the dispatch by saying my report to-day is of deplorable importance chickamauga is as fatal a name in our history as bull run by eight o'clock that evening however i found that i had given too dark a view of the disaster early the next morning things looked still better rosecrans received a telegram from thomas at rossville to which point he had withdrawn after the nightfall saying that his troops were in high spirits and that he had brought off all his wounded a little while before noon general james a garfield who was chief of rosecrans's staff arrived in chattanooga and gave us the first connected account we had of the battle on the left after the rout garfield said that he had become separated from rosecrans in the rout of our right wing and had made his way to the left and spent the afternoon and night with general thomas there he witnessed the sequel of the battle in that part of the field thomas finding himself cut off from rosecrans and the right at once marshalled the remaining divisions for independent fighting refusing both his right and left his line assumed the form of a horseshoe posted along the slope and crest of a partly wooded ridge he was soon joined by granger from rossville with steedman and most of the reserve and with these forces more than two-thirds of the army he firmly maintained the fight till after dark our troops were as immovable as the rocks they stood on longstreet hurled against them repeatedly the dense columns which had routed davis and sheridan in the early afternoon but every onset was repulsed with dreadful slaughter falling first on one and then another point of our lines for hours the rebels vainly sought to break them thomas seemed to have filled every soldier with his own unconquerable firmness and granger his hat torn by bullets raged like a lion wherever the combat was hottest with the electrical courage of a neigh when night fell this body of heroes stood on the same ground they had occupied in the morning their spirit unbroken but their numbers greatly diminished 
End of chapter 8